The Fanboy, episode 122. everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 122 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, funny little thing, this is actually episode 122 version 2.0, because you see, last week I did film, record, and begin to edit this episode Last week, I could have had it to you on time, and I'm sorry I didn't get you guys an episode last week as I had promised to do coming out of New Year's Eve. But, unfortunately, when I was going through it, I just felt like that version of episode 122 was a bit of a bummer. I don't know what it was. It was the combination of the topics that I'd chosen with what my actual real responses were to said topics combined with, I guess, what was going on sort of in the world at the time. It was about a day after the uh, that insurrection in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday of last week. So I just was in a weird place mentally. And as I'm going through the episode, I'm like, this is kind of a bummer. This is kind of a downer. And honestly, for a podcast that's about being a fanboy and celebrating the things that I love and talking excitedly and passionately about them, the last thing I want you to do is walk away from an episode of The Fanboy feeling kind of gloomy and down and, and unwell. It is always sort of my goal to give you some information, to give you some perspective, but to ultimately have you walk away with at least... Some uh, a little bit of optimism or a little bit of, uh, you know, something to look forward to on the horizon. And last week's episode didn't really uh, accomplish that at all. It was just it was a, it was a downer. So let's go ahead and, and try this again. Uh, I've been away now for a week. I gave myself plenty of time to sort of recharge and come back at this. I'm revisiting some of the topics, but not all of them. And uh, let's do it, shall we? So first things first, I feel like I should catch y'all up on my thoughts on Wonder Woman 1984, since, you know, heading into the break, that was the big thing we were talking about a lot for the several episodes leading up to New Year's. I was talking about my overall anticipation for the film, my hopes for it, what I thought it could be, everything. You know, I, I was very hyped, so now I feel I owe you my, my, my unadulterated response to the movie. So, if we were going on a four-star scale, I would give it a two and a half out of four. If we were going on a 10-point scale, I would give it a 6.5 out of 10. To me, Wonder Woman 84 ultimately ended up being a, a slightly above-average experience. And, you know, I have complicated feelings on it, and a part of me doesn't even really even want to talk about this without seeing it a second time, because sometimes a second viewing kind of helps me put things into better perspective. Sometimes, especially if I walked into a movie with perhaps unrealistically high expectations, I don't always blame the film on that. Sometimes it's like, well, maybe that was, you know, maybe it was a, it was the two of us 
You know, maybe my expectations were unreasonably high, and maybe the movie also was a bit of a misfire, but it's not all one or the other. So sometimes a second viewing helps. I remember I did that with Last Jedi. I did that with Man of Steel back in the day where I saw it three times in theaters before I really started talking about what I thought of it. So with WW84, there's absolutely a part of me that feels like I need to give it a second viewing just to like now with a much more realistic set of expectations and, uh, and just see how it strikes me then. But in a nutshell, to me, you know, it's funny. Everyone keeps comparing it to old Superman movies, you know, because we know Patty Jenkins has an, you know, uh, an affection for Richard Donner and Christopher Reeve and what they did back in 1978. And arguably Wonder Woman, you know, the first Wonder Woman borrowed a lot from Richard Donner's 1978 film. But this one, to me, uh, borrowed a little more from Richard Lester than Richard Donner. And more than anything, it reminded me of a very different Superman movie than anyone has compared it to. So hear me out. In a lot of ways, it actually reminded me of Superman Returns. What? Now, I don't mean the actual movie itself, but my issues with it. Because just like Superman Returns, here was a film that had a lot of talent behind and in front of the camera. There was a lot of things going for it that one could be excited about. A lot of great energy went into this. It has a great score. It's a beautiful looking film if you watch it on mute. It has all the greatest intentions in the world. You know, I thought Brian Singer's Superman Returns, you know, its heart was in the right place. But ultimately, that script was a few studio notes away from being ready. And I feel the same way about Wonder Woman 1984. That was a few studio notes away from being ready. And that's kind of ironic, right? And these in this day and age where the Warner Brothers and their infamous studio notes and their now infamous meddling on their DC projects is such a negative stain on the DC on film landscape. But yet I really can't help but feel that Wonder Woman 84 might have done better with just someone else coming in and just saying, hey, are you sure about this? Or this is feeling a little half-baked. Maybe you should develop that more. You know, I, I read stories after the film came out that basically Patty Jenkins won every fight. That, you know, the studio let her make the movie her way. That even though they wanted her to cut one of those opening two sequences, whether it was the uh, that sort of Olympic-style competition that young Diana was competing in on Themyscira, or if it was that scene at the mall, the studio wanted her to cut one, but ultimately she had final approval and she kept everything. In another interview, you know, Jenkins revealed that out of everything they shot and wanted to be in the movie, there was just one scene that they ended up cutting, and it was just somewhat uh, of a trivial scene and kind of no big deal. So this movie that we got was 100% Patty Jenkins' movie, and, you know, I, sometimes I guess it's like, be careful what you wish for, because we want our, our, our creatives to have creative freedom and to be able to satisfy their vision and tell the story they want to tell the way they want to tell it. We want that. And it sounds wonderful on paper. And it, it, it is a great practice overall. But this film, to me, th there were certain things that I'm just like, how did that get a thumbs up? How did that make it through the editing process? You know, just to kind of go into it ever so slightly, 
you know, I, 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 the Steve Trevor thing, where if you haven't seen it yet, this is going to be a mild spoiler, but we know that she brings back Steve Trevor. But instead of just having him come back, you know, like the wish made him appear again, or maybe the wish, you know, pulled him out of that plane in 1918 and kept him somehow, I don't know, brought him to 2018 and, and through a wormhole. And, and, you know, they could have given us actual Steve and Trevor. Instead, they went through this weird route where he replaces the life of somebody who was already alive and well, who had their own apartment and seemingly their own things going on, a whole apartment filled with stuff. You'd have to imagine this person has friends and coworkers and family. And for some reason, they decided that Steve Trevor replaces that guy. And they never really address where what this guy's like family thinks about him suddenly being gone. Um... You know, it was just, it was like, it was a perplexing creative decision that wasn't really paid off in a sufficiently interesting way at the end of the movie. Because I kept thinking maybe they're doing this because they're setting up something where Diana learns a moral lesson. You know, maybe they're doing this because all of a sudden this guy's mother is going to be knocking on the door and she's going to realize like, wait a minute, you know, I brought Stephen Trevor, my love back, but at what cost? You know, I took someone else who was loved away from their people. And that's why she would have to give him back up. You know, I kind of thought maybe that's why they did it in this oddly convoluted way. And ultimately, it doesn't really get addressed. He just, Steve Trevor, she renounces the wish. And then we see that guy later wearing the clothes. And we're supposed to feel all cool and funny about it because it's the same outfit that, that she had turned down earlier in the movie or that she had wanted. And now he was wearing it. You know, it was played for laughs. But to me, like, it just struck me as like this weird sort of tone deaf decision and convoluted too to have him look in the mirror and you realize that what she's actually seeing is that other guy. But deep down, she can just tell that it's Steve because of his aura and his presence and his energy. I don't know, man. It was like such a boneheaded, weird call, you know, and then the whole thing with Max Lord where, you know, I, I was not against him making himself the wishing stone. That was fine. I was intrigued. I'm like, okay, this is good. This is some weird, darkly mythological, you know, weirdness here. I can't wait to see why they're doing this and what the payoff is going to be. But to ultimately just kind of have him standing under a great light and they're beaming him into every television in the world and somehow through some microscopic particles it's like he's able to touch everyone and grant everyone's wishes at the same time i don't know man it just to me it reminded me of superman returns it reminded me of lex luthor's big plan coming down to i'm gonna make a big rock crystal kryptonite island off the coast of the united states and i'm I, and, and i expect to just be able to keep it and that no one's gonna try to stop me and even though i keep referencing advanced alien technology that no one has access to i'm not demonstrating that i know how to use any of it i'm just here playing cards and counting money on a big rock in the ocean you know the the it, it was so like underbaked it was so ill conceived and ill thought out that it's like you know back then back in 06 a part of me was like how did who at warner brothers read that script and saw the dailies 
and saw a rough cut of the movie and saw all that, who saw all that and didn't think, hey, Brian, that uh, that Lex Luthor plot, that whole third act is pretty stupid. Like, we know what you're going for poetically, but it really reads strange and dumb to have Lex and his goons on some big gray rock on the side of the ocean, believing that they're about to take over the world, you know, like unless you're going to show that he's learned how to manipulate the Krypton, the, the Krypton tech, unless you've shown that he's built like a fortress around himself with special protections using, you know, Brainiac AI and other things that he was able to use, like show us how it is that he, you know, what his end game is. But if his endgame, if the most brilliant criminal mind in the world, if the best thing he can come up with is growing a giant rock island that anyone could just come and take him off of, because all he's got protected by are six goons with machine guns, um, you know, what kind of a final plot is this? What, like, what are we doing here? And I, I was feeling similar ways with Wonder Woman 84, where it's like, great cast, respectable director, amazing cinema you know i mean not amazing but you know really good cinematography it looks and feels like this was a high budget big deal for the studio to put out there they promoted the hell out of it they made a huge deal out of it but it didn't seem like anyone made a huge deal out of going over that script and making sure that it wasn't hokey and strange and filled with contrived choices you know and it's a shame because again i love what it was going for I love the, the, the morals of the film. I like where its heart is at. I like the, what Jenkins was trying to convey using these characters. I liked some of the themes of it. But overall, to me, it just didn't come together. It didn't come together. Somewhere in that last hour, uh, it just didn't. It just stopped working for me. And it's a shame. So I'm going to see it again and maybe I'll update my thoughts. Maybe I'll film just a separate video review on Wonder Woman 84 where I can go a little longer on not just the things I disliked like I just did, but I could also talk more about the things I loved. But um, suffice it to say for now, I was pretty underwhelmed. And to me, ultimately, it's just a, uh, a slightly above average DC film when all is said and done. And that's a shame. Um, but you know, it's not a shame. Something else that came up since we last spoke is that Michael Keaton officially closed his deal to join Andy Muschietti's Flash movie. So all those rumors from several months ago are now confirmed and a done deal. We're going to be seeing Ben Affleck's Batman and Michael Keaton's Batman in the Flashpoint movie or the Flash movie that is supposedly taking a few cues from Flashpoint. And there's also the possibility of Keaton's Batman popping up in a mentor role in other DC films. And I should clarify, because there was some confusion after a New York Times feature came out where they were talking about Walter Hamada and the future of DC on film. And there was some confusion from that article where people walked away from it for some reason, thinking that Michael Keaton's Batman was also going to get his own movies. That essentially DC was preparing to launch not one, but two Bat franchises. 
where you would have the Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson Batman, and you would also have the Michael Keaton Batman having his own movies. And that quickly got debunked. But some people are seem to be a little unsure about that still. So just to make it clear, in case you somehow heard through the bad game of telephone that the rumor mill likes to play, if somehow you heard that there were going to be two Batman franchises, just know that's not the case. It's only going to be the one. And Keaton is seemingly the one who's staying on as the DCEU Batman, while it seems like Ben Affleck's Batman is really just there for a send-off, which is how it was originally sold. I know a lot of us who want to see him back in all of his glory, uh, you know, we have selective hearing and selective vision when it comes to Ben Affleck and his version of Batman. But back in August, when he was speaking to Vanity Fair, you know, when they did their write-up on it, you know, and, and, and they also got quotes from Andy Muschietti and Barbara, uh, Barbara Muschietti, they also referenced it as he's coming back for one more go as Batman. It's just one more time. So even though that's been out there since August 20th of 2020, uh, there's still, you know, there's a, there are some folks, including myself, who up until recently were just trying to hold out hope, you know. But, hey, not only was it made clear back then that this is a wrap for Ben Affleck's Batman, but also he just added another film to his very crowded schedule. Since we last spoke, he announced that he's directing a movie for Disney now called Keeper of the Lost Cities, some, a fantasy film. So Ben Affleck is going to be very busy these next four or five years. So I, I hate to break it to the people who are who who've been pulling for that HBO Max series or or for some sort of resurgence of his Batman on the big screen. But unfortunately, it's just that it's not in the cards. It's not in the cards. He's going to be way too busy. And by all accounts, he's kind of over it in a lot of ways. And we're going to get to that. Well, actually, I guess we can just get to it right now. Because there's some also that there's some new quotes that came out from Affleck about his time as Batman. And while a lot of people have focused on one set of quotes, I would like to touch on another because a lot of people have focused on that. He recently once again reiterated that the main thing he got out of being Batman was the joy it brought his kids. And there's a quote that everyone's talking about that, you know, I, I wore the, the, the suit to my son's birthday and the happiness that brought him, you know, made up for all of the suffering on Justice League, you know, and, and a lot of people, you know, that that was the big headline that people were running with. But I, I'd like to kind of call some attention to what he said after that. So something else he said in that same interview was, unfortunately, there are a lot of reasons why things go the way they do in the movie business. And just because your face is on the poster doesn't mean that you're dictating all of those things. And even if you were, that they would go well. Now, that's interesting to me. That's interesting to me, especially that whole thing about that they would go well. Because Affleck has spoken before about how he was really intrigued by Zack Snyder's initial vision. You know, there's quotes talking about how, you know, Zack wanted to make a movie that was more like Frank Miller, that was more like The Dark Knight Returns specifically. It was going to be a very interesting story, and I was excited by that. All right, so we know that he's he was excited about where these films were going to go and what they were going to be. But 
as he notes here, great ideas don't always go well. Just because you have the right intentions and the right ideas and you're calling certain creative choices that you feel strongly about doesn't mean that it's going to work. You know, and that's something that I've tried to explain to people over the years as, as, as we look at what happened with DC on film post 2016. You know, a lot of folks like giving credit for the ideas, for the ambitions, for the intentions. And that's great. It's great to have ideas and ambitions and intentions. But ultimately, it comes down to the execution of those ideas. And then past that, it comes down to whether or not the people who see what you've created, if they enjoyed it at all. You know, because you could have all the most high-minded thoughts in the world and you could have put as, so much love and passion into something. But if ultimately it's rejected or it's only liked by a, a sliver of the audience that, you know, the studio was going for, you know, that's something that we have to factor into things. That's something that we have to, you know, look at. But something else that we have to look at is how terribly mismanaged DC on film was at the time. Because, and this is something that just, you know, it come, it irks me from time to time. And I, I always kind of want to bring it up and we're going to do it now. Because it's, it's insane how mismanaged things have been for these last several years. And I would say, like, much more than just the last five or six. Some folks like to think that all of the, uh, the issues crept up in, around 2016. But really, if you've been following DC on film, if you've been waiting since 1994 for a new Superman film series to come out, you know that the mismanagement behind the scenes at Warner Brothers has been going on for a very long time. But if we are going to specifically talk about all this, if we're going to talk about Zack's vision, if we're going to talk about the fact that Ben Affleck signed on for one thing and then things just did not go the way he thought they were going to go, we have to talk about the fact that Warner Brothers which to me is like the big unspoken thing in all this story, is that Warner Brothers approved of everything Zack was trying to do. In 2015, after they had delayed production on BVS so that they could... Actually, I, don't, I think it was in 2014 when this happened. Because originally, BVS was supposed to come out in 2015, if you remember. It was supposed to come out in 2015. And then instead, they delayed it. They brought on Chris Terrio. And shortly after that is when they finally sort of unveiled their full-fledged plan. That's when we find found out that Batman versus Superman was going to bear the subtitle Dawn of Justice. That's where they had announced what the next five years worth of DC films were going to be like. That's essentially where the, the blueprint was set. It was set during the delay on production for Batman versus Superman. So these things don't happen in a vacuum, though. You know, he had to have pitched them what he was going for, how many years it was going to take to complete it, and what he would need in order to complete it. And they not only said, okay, but they gave him everything. They announced it to the public. You know, they announced the slate, they gave Zach 250 million bucks, and they sent him off to go make BVS, which was going to be the launch pad for this entire expansive shared universe that was going to be taking place over the next several years. They did that. But then what did they do? Without a single movie coming out from that plan, they began tinkering with things. They began messing with the movies. They didn't even allow the audience to judge for themselves about step one of this plan. 
they decided on their own after the test screenings that they were going to start overhauling things. And to me, it's like, how does that happen? How do you go from 2014 going, all right, we're happy with everything that you're planning. Here's everything that you need. And we're going to tell the world that it's coming to like, I think January or so of 2016 suddenly going, oh no, we need to do a complete 180 and we need more of this and less of that. And we're going to tweak this and we're going to fire such and such. And we're going to like, you didn't even let one movie get out without putting your grubby mitts on it. Because listen, I am no defender of Batman versus Superman. As those of you who know, who watched a couple months ago too, when I did a rewatch with my family, to me, I have still very sort of harsh feelings about that movie and the vision behind it and, and what they were going for there. It's just not my kind of movie. It wasn't made for me. It's not what I'm into at all. But I cannot argue that the Ultimate Edition is not vastly superior to the theatrical cut. And it all came down to that hastily edited 30 minutes that they took out of it right before it went to theaters. And to me, that's what made the movie unwatchable. Yeah, BVS Ultimate Edition is watchable. It's just not my kind of movie. The theatrical cut to me is so disjointed and it's missing a certain flow that it just it's amazing to me that the three hour cut actually feels shorter than the two and a half hour cut. And it's because it's just, it's a more complete, more well-rounded story that has a better rhythm to it. So even though it's not my kind of movie, to me, it's clearly the better movie. And what that infuriates me, and again, it infuriates me as someone who didn't like the movie, <laughs> but it infuriates me that that shorter, crappier version is what the studio chose to release. Like, what are you doing? It, you've already got this movie, okay? Cutting off that half hour isn't going to suddenly change the overall movie, okay? So you insisted on cutting out that half hour because you thought, oh, three hours, how could anyone ever release a three-hour epic? Like, idiots, first of all. But you forced them to cut out that half hour and release in a completely inferior cut of the film. And then you clutch your pearls and freak out as the critics don't like it. And you clutch your pearls as the cinema score is very, very mediocre. And even your hardcore fans who showed up on opening weekend are at best tepid, giving it a B cinema score, gives, giving it the same score that they gave Green Lantern and Catwoman. And creating word of mouth that was so harsh that the box office drop off from Friday to Sunday and then from week one to week two were both astronomical. You clutch your pearls at all that after you put an inferior version of the movie in theaters. And based on that information, you, 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 you push through on this insanely illogical overhaul of Justice League. It, it, to me, it's like... I, I can't understand how people who are so above my pay grade, here I am just a schmuck in my garage in Whitestone, and I can see that this is ridiculously stupid, and the people making millions of bucks over in Burbank in their nice offices and who are in charge of these characters that we all love so much, they couldn't see this? They couldn't see, well, you know what? 
maybe this three-hour cut of BVS isn't what we had hoped for, but we have a lot of plans that hinge on the success of this movie. So it behooves us to make sure we, re you know, we, we release the best, most complete version of this story. You would think that that would be obvious to anyone who's trying to make this thing work. And instead, what do we get? Instead, we get that butchered movie. Then we get Suicide Squad, which I don't have to relitigate that case, but we know that you know David Ayer was forced to reshoot stuff and film new scenes and cut out certain subplots, that he had to add more humor, that he got kicked out of the editing bay. I mean, it was a mess. And what happened with Suicide Squad? Okay, so now, now let's keep track, okay? BVS, they tinkered with, it went badly. Suicide Squad, they tinkered with, it had greater box office success, and slightly better critical reception, I think, maybe. But overall, that Suicide Squad didn't, you know, it, 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 it left a weird taste in people's mouths to the point now where James Gunn is coming in to do a soft reboot on the Suicide Squad. You know, it, it's so what, so now they're two for two on tinkering these DCEU movies and making them worse somehow. Okay, then Wonder Woman is like the one shining example so far of them tinkering on a movie and somehow making it better. Because we know that they did make some changes to Wonder Woman and that, listen, the crappy CG at the end was not Patty Jenkins fault. That was ultimately added in later on when someone at the studio said, OK, we understand that you want to have a more poetic ending where Diana finds out that while she thought she was hunting a big, scary boogeyman, that actually she, you know, she's going to find Daniel Thulis, a, a sort of frail, quiet, older guy who really did not cause World War One. He just brought out the worst in humanity and kind of helped guide them in that direction, but that humanity is ultimately responsible for what's going on. And that's why they need a symbol of hope that could help turn things around. You know, we understand, Patty, that's how you want to end it. But we think these movies need a big boss fight at the end. So they ultimately said, okay, we're going to give you that moment where she sees Daniel Thulis and realizes that there is no actual like big scary monster to defeat. We're going to we're going to let that point land, but then we still want him to turn into Ares and have them have the big blow up battle. We know they added that. We know that it was a polarizing decision, but ultimately the creative choices around it did make Wonder Woman a very successful experience. And that's why the, the film overperformed at the box office, was beloved by critics, that even the people who didn't like the third act that much overall loved the movie more. And part of that was because of some of those changes in the third act, too. You know, the way that they used Stephen Trevor's sacrifice to inspire her, that wasn't there in the original ending. You know, the, the, some of the stuff in the No Man's Land sequence that, that, that leads up to it, that wasn't there in the original cut. So Wonder Woman is an interesting example of how the studio meddling, quote unquote, actually did help and improve the movie. But now let's keep moving. The very next one is what? The very next one is Justice League, which, again, I don't hate the theatrical cut. In fact, in certain ways, I find it rather enjoyable. It's fine. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't at all feel like it's connected to the previous two films in that trilogy that Snyder had been making. But 
you know, it, it, at the very least, it's moderately enjoyable. Ultimately, though, it was forgettable. It was bland. And it was sort of uneven. But more than anything, it didn't spark anyone's imagination. The box office was so low, the reviews were so tepid, that this entire insane overhaul of the DCEU amounted to a disaster. And I, I hate to say that, but when your Justice League movie opens up to 93 million bucks and can barely turn a profit, and after all of the years of hype, and this is the first time you're ever getting Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Aquaman, you're getting all these guys on the same team, on the same screen, at the same time, in the same era where the Avengers are making $2 billion a movie, for you to open a 93 million is just a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe. So to me, like when I look at that period of time, I feel like that overhaul was the most ridiculous thing. And that's coming from me, someone who at the outset of the overhaul was like, that's a good call. You know, I'm not liking where Snyder was taking things. I feel like this version of the characters is putting this whole DC on film venture into a corner. It's leading us down a dead end path. So when I first started hearing that other writers and, and other people were starting to get involved to try to shift where things were going, my initial thought was, wow, okay, bring it on. Let's see. Let's see if they're able to change, you know, change course here and make it stick. But ultimately they did change course but they were not able to make it stick. And to me, that's the, that, that, that is one of the biggest things about this story that no one really talks about. That Snyder's vision never had a chance. It was never given a chance. And to me, that's the craziest thing of all. Because in 2014, they sat down with that man and they approved of everything he asked for. And before he could get step one into theaters, they put their grubby mitts all over it. They edited it. They mangled it, they made it worse, and then acted surprised afterward when people didn't like it. How does that happen? And by doing things the way they did, there's always going to be an asterisk now on the Snyderverse. Because while so many people are debating whether or not they should restore the Snyderverse or if they should just continue to move past the Snyderverse. There's always going to be an asterisk on this conversation because, unfortunately, we're never going to know what the public thought of the Snyderverse. We're never going to fully know what the general public would have said and done if they would have just seen BVS Ultimate Edition instead of the theatrical cut that we got. We'll never know. So all of that drama, all of that chaos, all of this insanity that to this day, we're still experiencing fallout of the Snyder-Warner Brothers clash of 2016. We're still feeling that the fallout of that today through the Ray Fisher cyborg situation. You know, so it's just the fact that we're still dealing with the fallout of this insanity nearly five years later. It just goes to show, like, was it worth it? I think not. And especially since what they what they were going to replace it with, and I've discussed this, what they replace it with might have been interesting. 
You know, they were going to go and they, they were shifting away from Dark Side. They were shifting towards a Legion of Doom movie. There was a, there was a somewhat of an intriguing plan B on you know in in the works. But when Justice League basically you know fell on its face after its opening weekend, all of those plans disappeared along with Henry Cavill's Superman, which is another thing, by the way, because along with my renewed or, or, or newly discovered, I should say, love of Man of Steel nowadays, um, the fact that prior to Justice League's release, they were intrigued in doing more Superman movies, but then decided after JL flopped that they weren't interested in Henry Cavill's Superman anymore. Um, you know, it's just, it, it makes first flight so bittersweet to watch because that movie came out, you know, this summer, this summer, man of steel will be eight years old. Okay. We're only a few months away from man of steel being an eight year old movie. And we've never seen something like flight, like, like first flight since we haven't seen Superman soar to those heights and be treated in that grandiose mythological form since the summer of 2013. And these last few weeks, ever since me and my, and, and my son I fell in love with Man of Steel, and every once in a while we'll just sit on the couch, boot up HBO Max, and watch strictly the first flight sequence, and I'll just sit there crying for three minutes. Uh, it's bittersweet, because it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful, but this whole DC on film venture was so poorly managed that we never saw it again and we likely never will. I just, it's insane. It's insane that we're here and it's insane that we're still analyzing all this stuff all these years later because there's still shockwaves. There's still ripple effects from those decisions that were made in 2016 that we're still paying for. I just, you know, what can you say? I just can't believe it. Especially because it's, it's, it's so wildly inconsistent. Things are always so wildly inconsistent. Things feel so hot and cold over at Warner Brothers, and I don't know why that is. Over the years, over the last 25 years that I've been following these stories related to Superman and Batman and all of their DC-related plans since the early 90s at this point, things are just so wildly inconsistent. If you go and watch, you know, uh, What Happened, The Death of Superman Lives, it'll show you some of the chaos behind the scenes that ultimately torpedoed that movie. But also... You know, with, with Superman Returns, bringing that back up again, with that movie, you had a film that was positively reviewed, had a, you know, decent, I mean, I think a slightly better cinema score than, than, than uh, Catwoman and Green Lantern. And I think Superman Returns got like a B plus instead of a B. But here's a film that was reviewed relatively well was relatively well-liked, but didn't do great box office. However, you have a filmmaker there who has already shown that he can upsize his sequels, that he can upgrade his sequels. 
You know, he, he was promising to basically pull an X2. And listen, it feels weird to be talking about Brian Singer now with everything that's come out since. But just at the time, based on what we knew in 2006, you know, the, the critiques of Superman Returns, a lot of them were about that it needed more action. It needed, it needed less nostalgia. And it just needed a, a better sense of, like, action and adventure. That was the main thing. And he had promised to do an action-adventure sequel to Superman Returns. But they were so sort of wishy-washy that for years there was maybe going to be a sequel, then there maybe wasn't, and then they just let it go. So that, that was how they treated Superman Returns. But then seven years later, you have a film that is reviewed worse, and the box office, while substantially better still isn't what they had hoped for. You know, they were looking for something more like over 800,000 or, you know, more like, you know, closer to a billion. I shouldn't say 800,000, 800 million. You remember, they, they were coming off the Dark Knight trilogy where the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises each made over a billion bucks. And now they have Nolan and Goyer making their Superman movie. So they thought, okay, you know, this is going to be our key to making that successful Superman movie that everyone watches. And look, it's going to have all this action. Everyone wanted action. And the entire third act of Man of Steel is action. So they release that movie. But what happens? It's reviewed worse and it doesn't do as well as they thought it was going to do. So you'd think, OK, maybe they're going to be wishy-washy. You know, they were wishy-washy with Superman Returns and Brian Singer. Maybe they're going to be wishy-washy with, with uh, Man of Steel and Zack Snyder. But instead, they doubled down by re-signing him for the sequel. And then they tripled down by basically allowing him to be the architect for all of DC on film. So here you have Man of Steel, a film that was polarizing, you know, like I said, Reviewed in the mid-50s on Rotten Tomatoes, so it was like a 50-50 thing. Half the people liked it, half the people didn't. People are still arguing about Man of Steel online to this day. So anyone who's doing online research and going to message boards and looking on Twitter and looking on Reddit and looking at all this stuff, you know, Man of Steel was a bit of a divisive pill to swallow. You know, a lot of people love it, but there's also lots of people who think it was a total turd. And... What did Warner Brothers do, though? Were they wishy-washy? No. They doubled down by re-signing Snyder. They tripled down by going, okay, that vision that was already sort of polarizing and didn't lead to the results we were hoping for, we're going to let, we're going to give that person the ability to now shape the entire DC on film landscape. What could go wrong? And then they see BVS and they go, oh, this was a bad idea. Let's trim his movie. It's like, where was this concern before you re-upped his contract and gave him even more creative power than he had on Man of Steel? And then what do they do? And, now they, and then they take it away and they do all the things I already said 15 minutes ago. This back and forth inconsistent, we don't know our mouth from our asshole philosophy at Warner Brothers is just, you know, I, I don't know I, I don't know how to defend it. I don't know how to pretend to be excited about it. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do when it comes to looking back on the past because the past is incredibly frustrating. So you know, in terms of the future, 
you know, th there was recent controversy because a lot of people have been wondering what I've been wondering. That when Zack Snyder's Justice League comes out, is it really one and done? Or is there going to be the potential for further stories? And again, I don't ask this because I'm eager for further stories. I'm not into the types of movies that Snyder's makes. Snyder's make. <laughs> I'm into the kind of movie Snyder makes. There you go. And so I don't ask that question because I'm eager that he for him to do it. I'm asking because I know his storytelling style. And I know that when it came to these DC films, he was sort of notorious. You know, with BVS. I mean, I, I, I guess I shouldn't. You can't build notoriety on one movie. So I misspoke there. He's not notorious. But with BVS and with a lot of the aborted plans that we heard for Justice League, Snyder developed a reputation with these DC movies for planting lots of seeds for things to come. He likes to foreshadow. He likes to drop hints. You know, he, he, he likes to load these stories with like little Easter eggs and things you could look forward to later on. So when they first announced that the Snyder Cut was coming... I began asking the question, well, what's going to happen to all the teases? What's going to happen to the stuff that he was trying to set up that he ultimately is not going to get to pay off? What's going to happen to that stuff? And we've had a little more clarity on that in the last few weeks. Because in that New York Times feature that I referenced earlier, they said you know, an unnamed executive at Warner Brothers uh, is said to have referred to... Snyder's film as a cul-de-sac, a road that goes nowhere, that this is really just one and done. We're going to get Justice League as a special sort of gift to all the people who wanted to see the alternate version of the story, but that there is no intention to follow up. And that that announcement in and of itself, or not an announcement, but that that quote in the New York Times piece in and of itself caused an uproar where everyone suddenly was Googling what cul-de-sac was and everyone had to discuss their thoughts on it. And, and for me, when I chimed in on it over on the Twitter, you know, I was quick to note that like to me, even if that is the case, why would you let that get out into the public domain? Because you're risking, t you know, bringing down the excitement for the project. You're risking, you know, you're telling all these people who were ardently fighting for this movie, yes, you're going to get it, but don't get too excited. Because there's going to be lots of teases, but none of it's going anywhere. Like, even if that's the plan, why tell them that now? Especially if you can be proven wrong later. Because what's going to happen, folks? If Zack Snyder's Justice League does ridiculously well, if the HBO Max subscription numbers really, you know, they get flooded with new subs when that movie comes out, if the critics who see it are pleasantly surprised, if the general public that views it, who, who actually finally gets to see a completely unadulterated version of Snyder's vision for the first time, mind you, this will be the first time anyone sees Zack's unadulterated vision for these characters. Remember, because Man of Steel, he was a hired gun. That was the Nolan vision. That was the Goyer vision. And Snyder was allowed to have input there. But BVS was his first one where that was completely his baby. And they neutered that one. And we haven't seen another one since. So in March, when ZSJL comes out, this will be the 
first time the general public actually gets to see and opine on what Zack would do with these characters. So now let's say they like it and the subs go up and the reviews are more favorable and more buzzworthy than initially projected. Let's say those things happen. This is a hypothetical, but listen, anything's possible. These are just movies we're talking about, right? You can't predict with 100% certainty what's going to bomb and what's going to fail. So if this Justice League comes out and does ridiculously well, you mean to tell me that Jason Kalar and his people at HBO Max, you mean to tell me Jim Lee, you mean to tell me that people who stand to make a lot of money off this are going to go, well, listen, we know it's a big hit, but we're not going to do anything else with it. No, not at all. Like, and why would they? It makes no business sense. This is Hollywood. This is show business where anything that's remotely good gets a sequel, a prequel, and a spinoff series. You know, this is the era we live in now. So why would you even attempt to neuter where this could go? Even if that's your plan, keep that to yourself. You know, so that cul-de-sac conversation that came up since we last spoke is something I had to touch on because it's just ridiculous. But as we're talking now about like the Snyder legacy at DC and whether or not, you know, we can be expecting more of any of this, you know, that that unfortunately doesn't seem to be happening for now. It looks very unlikely. Even Snyder himself said a few days later after the cul-de-sac comment, Snyder himself said in an interview that he's not, you know, he's not planning on doing anything else. But then he also added at the end a little bit of that sort of like never say never thing, you know, because he's like, well, then again, I never thought I'd be doing this, you know. But he very realistically addressed the fact that like, look, at the end of the day, this is a four year old movie. And DC has gone on in other directions since this. And they're happy with where they're at. So this, you know, I'm not making this as the beginning of some new grand master plan. This is what it is. So Snyder himself has seemingly confirmed that as well. So, you know, some interesting things have come up since we last spoke about Snyder's DC vision and his legacy and what this Zack Snyder Justice League can, should and will be. And uh, I'm happy to have touched upon that for you here. But what I actually want to do now is bring it all back to Affleck. Bring it all back to Ben. Because there's another quote that's making the rounds from a recent Affleck interview that I would like to share with you. Because I think, even though it's not obvious, I think there's a way to connect it to his previous comments about his time as Batman. So somebody asked him about Kevin Feige. And here's what he had to say. Fucking Kevin Feige is absolutely, you have to say, the greatest producer, most successful producer who ever lived. He's the only guy in the world who, if he told me, I know what the audience wants, this is what we're doing, I would believe him 100%. That fucker knows his audience like no producer ever. He's a genius. Kevin is like a ringmaster at the circus. He knows exactly how much to wink at the audience, exactly when to pull at the heartstrings, exactly when to do the effects, how many jokes, what the sensibility, what the tone is, because people didn't know to run away from the pajamas or embrace it or make it serious. So that to me is very interesting. You know, Affleck, who's just been through the ringer these last few years as Batman, 
uh, you know, as part of the DCEU, the credit that he's heaping on Feige here to me is notable, you know, and, and it's not notable in like a crappy like DC versus Marvel fanboy flame war immature bullshit kind of way. It's notable because he's he just lived it. He just went through the years of what happens when there's uncertainty about what their audience wants, where there's uncertainty about what the direction should be, where there's uncertainty about the tone. Is this too dark? Is this too light? Should it be optimistic? Should it be that? You know, he just, he just witnessed a lot of hemming and hawing about how to make these characters work now in this era. He just lived through that and he saw it go badly. He saw a studio question itself so hard that they ended up neutering their own movies and crapping their own franchise down the tubes just for it to slowly start to creep back up in the last few years. He just lived that. So for him to talk about specifically Feige's ability to know what the audience wants to pick a you know chart a course for these movies and to know how much of each element to include in each of these movies and then for these movies to not just be a good idea but for all of them to come out get good reviews get good fan response get good box office receipts sell lots of merch you know, basically do everything that 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 the studio wants it to do like it's it, it's it's notable to me it's notable to me that Affleck can offer that level of credit. Because to me, he does it from a place of great experience and great perspective, considering where he just came from. And he's not the only great artist who has recently uh, dropped a lot of great praise on Feige. You know, John Favreau, our boy who me and Brett were raving about on a very fanboy Christmas, which I hope you guys checked out. Um... You know, John Favreau, who everyone is is in love with now, who's running a victory lap because of that successful season two finale for The Mandalorian. John Favreau recently went on the record talking about Kevin Feige. Here's what he said. But we always knew, and this is something I learned from over at Marvel and working with Kevin Feige, is you always want to keep the core fans in mind because they have been the ones that have been keeping the torch lit for many, many years. But these are also stories for young people and for new audiences. These are myths. And so you always want to have an outstretched hand to people who might not have that background. And so you're really telling two stories at once. You're telling the story for the people who are fresh eyes, and you're telling the story for the people who've been there with the property and with the stories and the characters for so many years and make sure that you're honoring them as well. And I just find that interesting because it, 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 it paints a picture that the best way to approach these stories isn't so much about deconstructing the characters so much as celebrating them. So much as honoring the reason that they've been around for however many decades they've been around, you know, honoring those fans who've been with them through thick and thin and who feel a sense of ownership of them, while at the same time trying to appeal to a newer, younger audience who's going to fall in love with these characters for the first time ever. And Feige seems to approach this like, well, you know, we have to try to keep the core principles of these characters in place and present them in a way that is classic and recognizable 
while also contemporary at the same time. I mean, it, it's a fine line to walk. But right now, with what's going on between the success over at Marvel and the in, you know, the unsteady back and forth of what's happening at DC, you know, it just makes you wonder if if maybe DC on film should have gone this other way from the start. Instead of going with the deconstructive start that they were going for, maybe this would have been the way to go. But then again, how would we know? We never got to see if the audience would actually embrace the deconstruction of these characters because we the, the audience never got to see the BVS Ultimate Edition. And to this day, when people argue about BVS, I always kind of want to point out that, like, you realize, hey, if you're busy defending this movie to someone or attacking this movie to someone, you might want to make sure you're talking about the same version of the movie. Because a lot of us hardcores, when we talk BVS, we're not talking about the theatrical cut. We're talking about the vastly superior Ultimate Edition. And meanwhile, we're going to get into arguments with people who hated BVS, but they're referring to the mangled theatrical cut. But anyway, I think I've beat that dead horse quite a bit. <laughs> but, um, you know, th th this bit on Feige, the, the, the merits of, of either glorifying the classic versions of the characters or deconstructing them, or a as, as Affleck put it when he was talking about it, you know, people didn't know to run away from the pajamas or embrace it or make it serious. Uh, it looks like Feige somehow found that special sauce between those three approaches. And uh, I just thought that was worth noting. Even if we'll never truly know because of that asterisk, whether or not audiences would have embraced the much more serious deconstructive approach. Um, but, you know, while on the subject of Marvel, uh, today's a big day. Today's a big day after an 18 month absence, the Marvel Cinematic Universe returns with uh, actually, is it 18 months? Yeah, I think it's something like that since July of 2019. Um, my math is all screwed up. But anyway, uh, for the first time since summer of 2019, WandaVision is coming out. So the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to have some new, fresh content for the first time since Spider-Man Far From Home. And right now, a lot of you are probably streaming that on Disney+. Plus. I've seen lots of responses about WandaVision, lots of hype pieces, lots of previews, lots of reviews, lots of uh, hot takes. Um, for me, I haven't seen any of it yet, so I cannot opine on the show itself. What I can share with you, though, are two things. One, it's very notable that the supposedly risk-averse Marvel Studios would release this show because this show is out there. You know, I, I, I've, I've watched several trailers and previews for it, and it's absolutely a very unique, very, like, unconventional show. You know, the entire conceit, the entire thing about, you know, we're going to start off like a 1950s I Love Lucy sitcom, and then we're going to visit other decades and visit their signature TV series tropes. And all the while, we're going to be planting a, a seed that's going to lead into Doctor Strange and Benedict. You know, it, it's a very unconventional, non-cookie-cutter 
very bold approach to storytelling, which is something that we always give Marvel a hard time for, right? We always kind of say that, oh, that Disney cookie cutter sort of corporate entertainment that is Marvel Studios. And now WandaVision is like anything but that. It looks way out there and way outlandish. So I feel like we got to give credit where credit is due. And I brought this up before that Feige seems much more comfortable taking risks Nowadays, after having established the Marvel brand and spending several years building up a lot of equity with fans and building up the Marvel Studios name around the world, after he did all that good hard work, now he takes slightly bigger risks. And there's some other examples in the past I'm not going to rehash right now, but honestly, WandaVision could be the biggest risk of all. Is it's the least conventional thing they've released so far. Even Falcon and Winter Soldier, no matter what they do with it, it's going to feel somewhat familiar because we've seen these characters in their suits running around fighting crime and dealing with Baron Zemo before. You know, and listen, that doesn't mean it might not be awesome. I have high hopes for Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But in terms of conventional or non-conventional, uh, WandaVision to me is a complete departure. So we must give credit where credit is due. But with that said, I cannot seem to find any excitement. I've been looking everywhere. I checked under the couch cushions. I checked uh, under my car, you know, under my driver's seat. You know, sometimes things get lodged under there. Uh, I cannot find excitement for WandaVision. I don't know why. I've seen trailers. Before I recorded today, I sat down and watched this five-minute preview that IGN put together talking about you know, the, the insanely unique approach that they're taking to telling the story and the, the slow build intrigue of, of what's really going on with these characters. But I don't know. It just, it kind of just goes in one ear and out the other. Maybe it's because, you know, I, for one, didn't really care about these characters in the movies. You know, I wasn't a big Vision person when he came out in, what was that? Was that in Civil War that he made his appearance? No, that was in Ultron. So I wasn't a big Vision person in Ultron or in either uh, Avengers Infinity War Endgame movies. And Scarlet Witch, you know, I think she's fine. My my wife is actually obsessed with her, so she's probably going to push me to watch that series more than anyone else would. Because she thinks Scarlet Witch is very badass. So, you know, good for her. I just... I'm not a Scarlet Witch or a Vision person. So when I think of these characters, like, I didn't need to see more of them. So as soon as they announced that they were doing a series about them, to me, I was just like, okay, I guess, I guess. But listen, I don't want to rain on anyone's parade. If you're one of the people who are watching the first two episodes that released, I really hope you enjoy them. And who knows, maybe when I eventually check this out, maybe it'll grab me. But for now, more than anything, I think we got to give Marvel Studios credit on their very, very novel and sort of risky approach to unveiling this story. Because this show looks like nothing we've ever seen before. Um, and one TV show I am excited for, believe it or not, is Lois and Superman. You know, that that's right around the corner. The arrival of Tyler Hoechlin's Superman is right around the corner. I mean, he's been around for years. But the arrival of, you know, his his solo show where we're going to get to really see him shine uh, is right around the corner. And they've released some teasers. They've released a picture of him in the suit. He has a new suit. They made him a brand new costume. And Stephen Marshall asked me like a month ago. 
<laughs> to react to the new suit. So, Stephen, I hopefully you've been very patient, young man. But um, I love the suit. But I should also add, I didn't mind the original. The original one that Tyler Hoechlin had on. Listen, it's not the traditional Superman suit, but I wasn't against it. And that's funny because people like love to like peg me for being a traditionalist. People love to peg me for like, oh, you only didn't like Man of Steel because you want everything to be Christopher Reeve. It's like, no, I don't want everything to be Christopher Reeve. I have a very open mind about what Superman can be and what his costume should look like and how his abilities should be, um, you know, shown to the world. And yeah, so I had no issue with his original costume for the CW shows. And this one, though, which is like it took that suit and seemingly merged it with the design concepts behind Henry Cavill's suit. So it's like this weird amalgamation of his original CW suit and the Man of Steel suit. And uh, I'm enjoying the hell out of it. But more than anything, more than the suit, I'm enjoying the apparent direction they're taking. Because in the teaser... It was very sort of like artistic and poetic and interesting in a way. It seemed much more thoughtful than other series I've seen from the CW. Granted, I haven't seen a lot. But when it comes to the Superman thing, where it's him delivering sort of aspirational, inspirational quotes and talking about the internal conflict and family and life and all the different threads that are seemingly pulling you in all these different directions, you know... It looks to me like this might be a very thoughtful, heart-filled superhero series, and it happens to star Superman. So for me, like, that's a huge deal. And the fact that that's the tone and tenor of the teaser gives me hope and renewed interest in this series. So I'm going to go ahead and add it to my DVR, and I'll watch the first few episodes and then decide if this is going to be if this is going to be like a weekly appointment for me or not. But that's a big deal because that means it's going to be the first CW series I ever actively try to watch. Up until now, I've only ever checked out the crossover episodes. I've never actually sat down and watched a weekly episode of any of any of these standalone series within the Arrowverse. So Lois and Superman, between the really badass looking costume that really cool, thoughtful teaser. And the fact, by the way, and this is also just like a personal satisfaction for me. I remember when Superman Returns came out, a lot of people said that the decision to give Superman a child was a terrible decision and that they wrote themselves into a corner and that there's no way to get out of this now. And this is why there isn't going to be a sequel because Superman having a son is just a ridiculous idea and it's a plot contrivance and it's this, this and that. I remember those conversations. I was at bluetights.net on the message boards arguing with people like Calmart and other people about whether or not the idea of giving Superman a son is smart or stupid. And the fact that now here we are all these years later, and not only does the idea of Superman having a son, not only has that become a very common thing in the comics, by the way, have you, have you read Superman last son? That one's, that's awesome. By the way, that beeping you might hear in the distance is construction. And it's a miracle that we made it this far into the podcast without you hearing it. Because the front of my house looks like a war zone right now. The entire block, 
they, they've been doing construction for the last weeks and like we're not allowed to park on the curb because there's all these trucks all they're ripping everything up. I don't know what they're doing out there. But I was honestly worried that today's show might not happen because of the amount of construction activity outside and how I can't I don't have a soundproof studio. I'm just here in my garage with my fingers crossed, hoping for the best while my kids are upstairs doing virtual learning. And thankfully, mommy's home to help them. So I could be down here with you guys talking all this geeky stuff. Uh, by the way, my wife got the vaccine yesterday. That's why she took today off from work. She just wanted to be able to relax today, knowing that, you know, in case there were any side effects or anything. So mommy's upstairs relaxing. The vaccine went perfectly for her. She has a little soreness in her arm, but she's fine. And I get to be down here doing episode 122. And somehow this is the first time that construction outside has factored into what I'm sharing with you. But anyway, back to what I was actually talking about. Superman Last Son was pretty neat. It's what got Richard Donner out of Superman retirement. He came back and co-wrote Superman Last Son. Um, and, you know, I just know, even as someone who doesn't read all of the current books that are out there, I've heard about Connor Kent. I've heard about how the uh, the son of, of of Clark and Lois has become a recurring sort of issue in some of the uh, in some of the bigger storylines of the last ten years. So to now, not only is it not controversial for him to have a son anymore, but now there's going to be a series based around his family life. To me, it's just like wow. You know, if I could go back to '06 and let all the people know that hey, you know. You, you might want to let go of this idea that Superman can't have a family because that's about to be a big part of where the character is going, you know, not to mention, too, like I'm excited to see the show now because as a father also, I think it's going to be interesting to see the impact that that would have on Superman, that that would have on Kal-El. You know, I feel like just being a father and if they really, you know, if the writing is any good. It's going to add a lot more layers and depth to a character that a lot of people love to write off as being one dimensional. Well, seeing someone with godlike powers suddenly have to raise a child in today's climate while they come to terms with their own abilities and their own place in the world. That is anything but one dimensional and a very intriguing place to take Kal-El's further adventures. So listen, Lois and Superman is on my radar I think it should be on yours, too. But um, speaking of things I think should be on your radar, just wanted to run something by you before I wrap things up. When I was putting together the best of episode uh, about a month and a half ago, it, I, I listened back to some old episodes and I realized how much this show has changed since it first premiered back in the day. And... One feature that I, I would like to bring back and that I'm thinking of doing, but I want to know what you guys think, is I used to offer a movie recommendation at the end of each episode. And I'm thinking of bringing that back, but with a twist. So hear me out. Something I've discussed in the past is that I, for whatever reason, have a real hard time re-watching things. I have this like mental block where my mind is like, no, you must only have new, fresh experiences. You've already spent two hours in that world. It's time to move on. And what that has meant is there are a great deal many movies that I love 
that I can talk about to this day that I've only ever seen once and that I saw perhaps when I was like nine or 10 in certain cases. And what I kind of want to start doing now is re-exploring all of my favorites and seeing how they strike me today, how they strike me at age 37 and how they strike me on a second viewing in general. You know, was I watching a particular movie with rose-tinted glasses and now when I go back and watch it, I see it as a hunk of crap? Will that happen? Maybe. Is there a movie that I absolutely, um, you know, that I might have written off or that I thought was pretty good and memorable, but now when I go watch it, it's an instant classic? That might happen. But the point is, I'm compiling a list of all the movies that mean the most to me and that I feel sort of like define what my movie fandom is. And not only am I going to recommend them for you, but I'm going to recommend them for me too. I'm going to watch them as well. And uh, we'll be able to talk about them. I don't know, you know, I'm still kind of ironing out the exact format, but, you know, let me know what you would think about bringing back the movie recommendations. And in particular, I'm excited to do it because I'm going to be watching them along with you and really figuring out if this is a movie that is worth the praise and the love that I've had for it all these years, or is it something that I just really liked because I was a child at the time? And some of these are heavy movies. Like we're talking like The Godfather. We're talking like certain like classics. There are certain classic Hollywood all-time greats that I happened to watch when I was like, in certain cases, maybe even like 12 or 13. And what does a 12 or 13-year-old know about anything? So I'm excited to go back and re-explore some classics. And I'm thinking of bringing you guys along with me for that. So um, let me know what you think. Let me know what you think. And uh, once again, I'm sorry for keeping you waiting an extra week for this episode. Hopefully you found this episode entertaining, thought-provoking, or something positive. And until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Thank you.